Good evening, everyone. It's uh, good to see you. Uh, last Sunday night, if uh, you were here, we looked at Saul's uh, rather dramatic conversion in Acts chapter 9. And although we, we said it was atypical, in other words, it was unusual, it was unique to Saul, we actually went on last Sunday night to suggest and identify seven features of Saul's conversion that are in fact shared by every single Christian. Seven features that are part of all of our stories and there they are just by way of a reminder. Now as most of us probably know, Saul who when you get to Acts 13 we we discover is also known as Paul and that tends to be how he's known for the, the rest of the story. But he goes on to become a key figure in the early church and a a bit of a world traveller for Christ. And this evening we're going to take a bit of time to look in some detail at one of his adventures during a bit of a a city-wide tour that he, along with some of his friends and colleagues, embarked upon that took in places like Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, Beira, Athens and Corinth. All key places, all really important And Paul's input and impact in each city was very significant. But I specifically want to look at his experience in what was considered to be the cultural and intellectual centre of the Roman Empire at that time. And that was Athens. And we read about his visit to that city in Acts, as Alison has said, in Acts chapter 17. So if you have a Bible, can I invite you to turn there? It's page 1113 in the Bibles that are in the pews, and uh, I would like us to just take some time to read the story. Uh, Shall we stand together, as we often do for the public reading of God's Word? So let's stand. Acts 17, starting at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers begun to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears And we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked round and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your poets have said, and we are his offspring. 
Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image that is made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's even given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Okay, grab a seat. Now, amongst other things, uh, this text is seen to contain a brilliant example of cross-cultural engagement. You see, Athens had a particular culture. But when I say that, what do I mean? So I'm going to get you involved tonight, okay? I'm going to get you talking to each other. So if you've come with someone you know, that's great. If you haven't, then this might be a bit scary. And if you don't want to do it, that's also okay, all right? But what I want you to do is this. Whenever we say things like, for example, young people have a particular culture, or... Uganda has a particular culture. What do we mean by that? What kind of thoughts come to mind whenever we talk about people having a particular culture? Right? Turn to the person beside you. Have a chat about that for a moment or two. Okay? Go for it. Okay, this is one of the things about people now having iPhones and smartphones. They can go online and look up definitions. Uh, Give me some feedback. What what, what sort of comes to mind whenever people talk about culture? A shared sense of how you dress. Very good. Okay, so it's about dress codes. Yeah, anything else? Oh, I should hold on a minute. One at a time there. Values. Values. Thanks, Paul. Yeah. Traditions. Traditions. Okay. Mindset. Mindset. Yeah. Behavior. Behavior. Food. Food. Yeah. <laughs> Art. Yeah. Language. Yeah. Whenever, uh, whenever missionaries are heading off into a, a different cultural context, they, they need to have an understanding of 
that particular culture and things like how do people behave in that place or in that environment? What's important to them? What do people value? What do people think about there? How do people think? What is their mindset? What influences them? What do people read in that culture? What music do they listen to? What is perceived as wisdom and who are those who dispense it? That sort of thing. In other words, and here's a very, if you like, raw and simple definition of culture. And I, I need to keep things simple. It's the way we do things around here. And I, I think that's brilliant. And, and the reason it's, it's so important to understand and to be sensitive to culture and to the way we do things around here is because it enables you to make connections. If you understand the culture, you can then engage with it. And you can communicate into it far more intelligently and effectively. Now, I know this is a huge subject. And I, uh, I do appreciate that. But as we retrace Paul's steps, and that's really just what I want us to do, I want you to hold some of those thoughts in mind, just some of those things we've been, we've been talking about. And I want to see what we can learn and what we can take from Paul's actions and reactions that may help us to do three things. Engage with others more effectively. Share our faith more relevantly. And share Jesus more passionately. Engage with others more effectively. Discuss our faith more relevantly. Share Jesus more passionately. Within our contemporary cultural context. So let's look at the story. And if you do have a copy of the Bible, it will be really handy so you can follow it with me. You see, Paul clearly arrived in Athens before his friends. So he's there by himself. And he's got time to kill. And so he takes a walk around the city. And he's struck by the sheer volume of idols. The number of objects of worship that he sees dotted all over the place. But struck's too tame a word, because look at verse 16, it actually says he was greatly distressed, in other words, deeply troubled. And apparently that phrase also implies there was an element of anger in his reaction. But he didn't lose it. He didn't rant and rave. He didn't point the finger. He didn't begin tearing down or defacing the idols. According to a number of commentators, although Paul was angry at what he confronted, he acted with restraint and respect. And that in itself is a great lesson to learn. That whenever we as as Christians recognize that, okay, people do today cram their lives with alternative objects of worship. There's no doubt about that. God has not given the place he deserves. People put all sorts of other things before God. And that should distress us. It should trouble us. It should anger us to a point. But how we then respond is critical. Because restraint and respect are key values and attitudes in our cross-cultural engagement with our friends, with our neighbours, our colleagues, and with our society in general. Because when we rant and rave, we create distance rather than build bridges. We need to act with restraint and respect as we observe our culture. So although Paul is greatly distressed, look at verse 17, and this is how you know he acts with restraint and respect. It says he reasons with people. 
But what is really interesting to me is that he talks to various people in different settings. So whenever he finds himself in a religious place, in a synagogue, it says he reasons with Jews and God-fearing Greeks. But his connection and his dialogue with people regarding spiritual issues is not restricted to safe places. He was also willing and keen to reason with people in the marketplace or the agora, as it was known, of that day and on a daily basis. And again, at a a very simple level, there's another great challenge here that talking about faith and talking about spiritual issues and talking about what really matters should not be contained and confined to a church and not to a one day a week thing. Or with those who are naturally sympathetic. Although it's great whenever we do talk about our faith with each other. But it's vital that our reasoning, sharing and discussing of faith spills out into our day to day lives. Wherever we find ourselves, whatever company we are in, whoever we are with. That we actually reason with people. With respect and restraint. But we reason with people. And within this particular marketplace in Athens, which was the sort of hub of Athenian life, it was the main public space in the city, philosophers, it turns out, would meet there. And they would reflect on life, the meaning of life, the way of life. And two of the groups in particular engaged with Paul, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And each of them had their own understanding of life and what was important. And you can kind of study, if you do want to go into it, exactly what it is they believed about life. But... Whenever I say they engaged with Paul, it's not entirely right, because look at verse 18. It says they began to dispute with him. And not only that, they were pretty unimpressed with him and his reasoning. Even though he acted with restraint and respect and he reasoned with them, they weren't impressed. And so they say, what is this babbler trying to say to us? Which is not exactly a complimentary comment in any cultural context. Now it turns out, according to the end of verse 18, that the thing that was the problem was that Paul's preaching the good news. Paul's preaching the good news about Jesus and his resurrection. And that was brave of Paul to do that in that place at that time. It wasn't only brave, it was really important. And the thing that had happened here was they thought as they heard him, why they said, what's he babbling about? Is that he was advocating foreign gods. That that was what was the problem. More than one God. And you know, sometimes I think one of the reasons that I must admit... I'm rather reluctant to kind of share my faith and talk about Jesus is because I'm afraid of being misunderstood. Misunderstood. And yet the fact is, according to so much of Scripture, it's always a risk that we run. That we are increasingly surrounded by people who've got radically different worldviews than what we have. And therefore, whenever we present Jesus, whenever we share the good news, Whenever we talk about his resurrection and his death and their importance, it's highly likely that people will really struggle with what we're saying. And may even say, what what is he babbling on about? But that doesn't mean, or does it, that we should stop sharing this good news about Jesus and his resurrection. Well, these philosophers may be somewhat dismissive, but it turns out they're a bit intrigued. And so they take him to a meeting of the Areopagus, which is a great word. 
I love saying it. I'm not even sure if I'm saying it right, but I love saying it wrong anyway. But they take him to this place, and, and, and nobody's entirely sure exactly what this place was. Some people think he was dragged there, and he was sort of put on trial, but some others think that that's reading too much into the text, that it doesn't appear that he was, he was there under coercion. But they give him an opportunity there to explain what he believes. And it says, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? And so although, according to verse 20, they do think, listen, it's strange what you're saying. They're keen to hear more. And so as Paul begins to speak, and in the next ten verses, you find this carefully crafted address. Which some people have described, and you may want to take up on this, but as a model of sensitive but forthright confrontation of an intellectual audience with the claims of the gospel. Let me say that again. Here is a model of sensitive but forthright confrontation of an intellectual audience with the claims of the gospel. And so Paul starts with what appears to be a really positive comment. Almost complimentary. He says, men of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. And it's always a smart idea whenever you're about to challenge people's thinking to begin by affirming their openness to what you're talking about. Now, I don't know whether you would ever begin to talk to people and say, listen, I know you're religious today because I'm not sure many people are. But I think there is a spiritual hunger. I think there is a recognition within many people that there's got to be more to life than what they see and can touch and understand. And so I know words like spirituality are very in. And what we want to affirm is a Christ-centered spirituality. But I do believe that people today are spiritually interested. So I think it's always good to affirm where people are at in their hunger and in their restlessness. But Paul then states a fact. He moves on from that complimentary comment. He states a fact. He says, listen, I've seen your objects of worship, but it includes an altar. And that altar has this inscription to an unknown God. And then Paul does a very brave thing. He sticks his neck out and says, I'm going to reveal the identity of that unknown God. And as people... Uh, These are people who, according to verse 21, they spend their time and their days doing nothing but listening to the latest ideas. This would have created an air of expectation. Here's a mystery that's about to be solved, if you like. Here's a secret that's about to be uncovered. The identity of this unknown God. And so he goes on, and this is brilliant. He goes on to say, this unknown God is the creator The creator of the world, the cosmos, and everything in it. And see this God, this God is the uncontainable God. He's not confined to buildings that are built by human hands. In other words, he's saying this is a dramatic side swipe, or what he's doing is this is a dramatic side swipe at the idea of idols that normally were contained within buildings, but obviously some of them were not. But our God, this God, the God, the unknown God, he's uncontainable. He also said he's self-sufficient. Have a look at what he says here. He doesn't need anything. Doesn't need anything. And he's also the very source of life. And so Paul says he gives all men breath and life and everything else. He is the life-giving God. 
And Paul then goes on to clarify how from one man God made every nation of men and he provided for them. And he did this, why? So that humanity would seek him and reach out for him. Although Paul then says something that I find incredible. He says this, do you know God's not far from every single one of us? In other words, it's the accessible God. The creator God, the uncontainable God, the self-sufficient God, the life-giving God, the accessible God. God. And then what Paul does is he injects a quote, or at least it may be he injects a couple of quotations from their own poets. Verse 28. Widely recognized as a stroke of genius because what that does is it keeps his hearers connected to what he's saying. It shows that he understands their culture. He's engaged with their culture. He's sensitive to their culture. And so he quotes their poets as a way of shoring up his message. Because what he does is he actually grabs a couple of pieces of truth that some of their own poets have said in him we live and breathe and have our being. And so he connects their poets to what he's saying. And that kind of cultural sensitivity and awareness and understanding is very effective in evangelism. And Paul then moves from there, having developed this idea of who this unknown God is, connected their culture, or connected with their culture, and connected God with their culture, he then challenges them. This is often the hard bit. He challenges them about their idolatry. And he suggests, do you know what the only course of action you have left now? And this, this would not have gone down well, is repentance. It's the only course of action. Paul says in verse 30, This God, this all-known God who I have now identified and revealed to you, he commands all people everywhere to repent. And that was provocative. But Paul didn't stop there because he then goes on to introduce two further issues that would have caught their attention. Judgment and resurrection. He says there's a common day of judgment. And he refers to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And actually Paul makes the point that the resurrection of Jesus proves or provides conclusive proof that this Jesus has been divinely appointed to judge the world. And in our preaching and in our teaching and in our sharing of our faith in our context, we have got to be so careful That we don't miss talking about these issues. Repentance. Judgment. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they're not popular. They really aren't. And one of them in particular definitely isn't. But even when we're speaking to intellectual, educated, streetwise people. We must not duck these mind-stretching realities. And Paul's speech here reaches a critical moment. And although up to now it appears that his audience have kind of been engaged and engaged with him intently, although maybe quietly, whenever Paul mentions the resurrection of the dead, there's a reaction. And that's enough for some people. They can't take it anymore. And so in verse 32 it says, they sneered at him. Ridicule and rejection are very real responses to issues such as the need to repent or the idea that we are going to be judged 
or the reality that Jesus did raise from the dead. People will just ridicule you and reject you. But it's not the only response here. There's two more. There were some people who wanted to hear more. We want to hear you again in this subject. And so there was interest and intrigue. And the third response, it was the most overwhelmingly positive. Because it says there were a few men and at least one woman who became followers of Paul and believed. So there was affirmation and acceptance. And I know some people think, well, I might think, well, that's, that's not a great response. Few men, one woman. But you know, as someone has said, even a small number of converts from a highly intellectual audience can be considered a huge success. And let's not also forget that when just one person believes the message, there is rejoicing in heaven. And so why should we not rejoice when even one person says, yeah, I affirm what you're saying and I accept it. And Paul's visit to Athens is over. And he leaves and he heads for Corinth. But let me make just a few more comments to consider. You see, although 2,000 years and a lot of miles separates then and there from here and now, we actually find ourselves living in an increasingly pagan and pluralistic cultural context. I mean, is Athens in some respects, really that different to Belfast in 2011? Is it really? Michael O'Connell, writing at the beginning of the third millennium in his book, Changed Ireland, a new Irish psyche, talks about the growing a la carte approach to religious belief in Ireland. And that is so true. There are more and more alternative belief systems and worldviews present and accepted and now believed in our society. Christians and Christianity are increasingly marginalised. No longer at the heart of society as maybe it was once perceived to be. Now, Christianity is very much on the fringes. More and more people question and sadly dismiss the biblical story and the good news about Jesus Christ But it's also apparent that more and more people simply don't even know it. It's not that they dismiss it. They just have no clue about it. They've grown up in a very different environment than maybe many of us grew up in. A non-church going culture. Where less and less people have any meaningful connection to a local church. And so Paul's approach in Athens is important to consider. Because he was willing to meet with and engage with people Where they were. Where they were. And so there lots of people met in this agora, this marketplace. And so what did Paul do during his time within that cultural context? He went and spent his days there. And the late John Stott commenting on this aspect of the story says this. The equivalent of the agora will vary in different parts of the world. It may be a park, a city square, a street corner, a shopping mall, a marketplace, a pub, a neighbourhood bar, or a student cafeteria. It's wherever people meet when they are at leisure. And therefore, maybe our challenge is not simply to meet people in those contexts, because that's actually relatively simple at one level, to meet people in these places. The real challenge is to adopt Paul's model and engage with people 
and reason with them. Connect with them. Converse with them. Be willing to convict them as we talk about and share our faith. We need to be relevant. Absolutely, we need to be relevant. We need to understand this culture. We need to be sensitive to this culture. We need to understand their questions. We need to listen to their objections about Christianity. We need to consider their alternative belief systems. But in doing that, we also desperately need to speak into their questions, their objections, and their alternatives. Paul did that. And if we are ever going to engage with others more effectively, discuss our faith more relevantly, share Jesus more passionately within our cultural context, then Acts 17, 16 to 34 is a model to embrace. And I remember coming across this about 12 years ago, this piece of writing, by Andy Hickford, about good communication in any cultural context. And I've always found this so helpful. Good communication is in the language of the receptor culture. Good gospel communication truly engages an audience. True gospel communication will radically challenge any culture. And true gospel communication will always carry with it the possibility of rejection. And I know that's slightly simplistic. But I think it provides a really helpful framework for communicating into our current cultural context. And so as we go out from here this evening, the one thing I want us to remember is this. God is not far. I just love this. God is not far from every single person we will meet this week. That was true in Paul's day. We've got to believe that's true today. God is not far. God has made people to seek after him. And so God's not far from every single person you lock eyes with this week. But part of what it means to be a Christian is to recognize that and to help people reach out and find him. And to do that, you need to spend time with them. You need to get a sense of where they're coming from. And then you need not to be afraid. I need not to be afraid to speak into their lives words of life and truth whenever I get the chance. And may God help us to do that. Let's pray together. Father, at times whenever we, uh, we, we look around us at our culture and the mindset that exists and the things that people value and behaviour and all of those things that we reflected on earlier, there are times when we despair and we wonder how people will ever find you or have any desire to find you. Because so many other things have taken your place in their lives, it would seem. And so God, give us an understanding of the context in which we find ourselves in. And help us not to be afraid to meet people where they're at. But not just to meet them where they're at, but be willing to engage with them, to reason with them. To share our faith with them. To talk about the God who is the one who created us. The uncontainable one, the self-sufficient one, the life-giving one, the accessible God. 
Help us not to be afraid to talk about things like repentance, the need to turn around. That there is coming a day of judgment. That Jesus really did live and die and rise from the dead. Give us the courage, God, to speak about these things. And help us, God, whenever the reaction we get is negative. And when we're ridiculed or even rejected. But thank you, God, that there are some who are intrigued and interested and there are others who affirm what we believe and accept it. And so, God, I ask for your help as we go from here into our marketplaces this week. That you would just give us a heart for the people in this culture. In Jesus' name. Amen.